You are listening to Playmakers Podcast, the podcast by and for game industry professionals. On every episode, I talk to a legend or leader or both of the game industry, and I dive deep with them into their areas of expertise and experience to suss out information that you can use to do your work in the game industry better and to give you a bigger perspective on the industry as a whole so you can adapt and succeed in your career, in your game, in your game business venture. This week, another lost episode. It's a good one, so make sure you've got those Bluetooth headphones snugly in place, and let's do this. I realize I cheese it up a little bit in those intros. You know I do that with love, right? And speaking of love, I would love it if you would write a review of Playmakers Podcast. That is the primary way that people find out about the show, that they validate that it's some good stuff, because when they hear it helps people like you, then they realize it could help them too. So if you're feeling it, write it. If not, that's cool too. I'm going to win you over. I am. I'm going to make this show better and better and better until you're like, dang. Okay, you know what? I will write a review. Sure. That may not be today. That may not be tomorrow. But until that day comes, I'll be here producing the interviews that give you what you need. And if you're not getting what you need from these interviews, I want to hear about that too. Shoot me an email, jordan at brightblack.co so I can find out what you do need and produce that content. Now, with all that said, let's get into the introduction of this week's epic guest. When I worked at Zynga, I got to be honest, I went through some pretty stressful and difficult times. And I was so lucky to sit next to, for a brief period, this week's guest. Because not only was he someone who I was able to learn from, a lot just by working with him, but also his presence was very calming to me. He would do things like remind me that things were going to be all right. (laughs) He would do things like maybe on a Friday after work hours, offer me a glass of wine, stuff like that. And it really stuck with me that There's such an impact to be made, not just by what you do, but how you do it. But this guest has certainly done a lot that's very impressive on the what category as well. He was a game designer at Monolith Productions, working on The Matrix Online. He worked as a senior developer at Sigil Games, was a senior game designer at LucasArts, a mission designer at NCSoft. He was a lead game designer at Zynga a lead game designer at Big Point, a lead systems designer at Sega, the director of game design at TinyCo, and he currently works as lead systems designer at Hangar 13. Now, when we conducted this interview, because it is a lost episode, he hadn't yet started at Hangar 13, so we don't talk about that in particular. But what we do talk about is... The journey from tabletop role-playing design all the way to live operations on free-to-play and mobile. If you do or plan to do live operations, this interview is can't miss. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Bruce Harlick. Bruce, welcome to Playmakers. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with a little bit about your background in the industry, how you got into the industry. I know you've been around for a while, so I'd like to hear a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I've actually been around for longer than I uh, like to say. I got my start making uh, pen and paper role-playing games way back in 1981, uh, working on a superhero role-playing game called Champions, and superhero kind of became a reoccurring theme in my my career. I stumbled into that because some people I went to high school with uh, made a role-playing game. I went to work for them, learned how to uh, design games, uh, did a lot for that company. So, so you, you went to work for a, a company that was started by people you went to high school with? Yeah, one high school classmate and then another person from our gaming group. Um, and how old were they when they started this company? Oh, George McDonald uh, must have been about... 21 or 22 and Steve Peterson, maybe a year older. Wow. Um, I was 18, um, at, at the time, literally right out of high school. So, so is this like just after, like when, when did Dungeons and Dragons come out and kind of explode the scene? D and D first came out, I think it was in 70. Yeah, I think it was 1973. I think I got into it in 1974. So not at all close, actually, to the early 80s. <laughs> We're probably considered a second-generation role-playing system if D&D and that ilk were, were, were the first, maybe third generation, depending upon how you slice that, that kind of stuff. But we were very systematic, very um, uh, balanced. You kind of spent points to buy whatever you wanted. We removed the randomness from character generation, and that, I think, informed a lot of my system design sensibilities as uh, uh, the years went by. Anyway, how did, how did you learn that, that stuff? How did, how did you and George figure out how to do that sort of balance? Well, George is a brilliant designer, as is Steve, but the genesis of the idea for this role-playing game was George's. And uh, he came up with the basic idea, and it kind of took over our D&D group, and we did a lot of playtesting for a few years and went through many iterations of the rules in... Uh, you know, until finally uh, he and Steve decided they wanted to publish this in uh, 1981, and it turned out to be a big hit. But there was just a lot of trial and error. The learn by doing, which is probably the best way, um, if you're fortunate enough to be able to do so, to learn. So I did everything for the company from shipping boxes to uh, the last thing I did was uh, acted as company president for about six months. Um, but mostly what I did was manage the uh, game line for champions. Uh, which involved developing and product managing game books for the role-playing game, which was a tabletop experience for those of you who aren't familiar with the analog version of those things. So, you know, these books had the information that um, people needed to create scenarios that they would run their, fr- their friends through and the information that the players needed to create characters to play in those scenarios. So how many books came out and, and what was the kind of span of time? Gosh, a lot of books came out. Um and let me tell you where my head is at. I'm thinking about the, um, you know, I'm thinking about live operations, and I know that's something you've had a lot of experience with, and uh, and how, you know, when you're when you have a system like this and you're creating these books, it's sort of like content updates to a live uh, there, product. That's a great, great uh, comparison, Jordan. And you're you're 100 right. When the company uh, was going, we needed to put, we tried to put out about a book a month. We probably hit ten a year. That's amazing. Um, to do that. And some of these, and they ranged from small adventure books to large kind of rule supplement books. And you see the same pattern. You look at Dungeons and Dragons or any of the successful role-playing games today, they'll put out the core rule books and then they'll have a regular cadence of support material, new class books, uh, adventures, bestiaries, 
grimoires, uh, monster magic item books, if they're, you know, all those obviously are for fantasy games, types of things, but just to keep the players buying and to keep money going in, because once that you bought the core rule book, you could theoretically never need more books after that. You have what you need to uh, play the game. It's kind of like buying a game and then not buying any more um, downloadable content or any of the sequels or anything like that. That's great for the publisher for a year or two, but they need to keep, you know, the computer world, they need more stuff. Right. It's um, the same, it's the same problem it. we run into with just, you know, having a product versus having a business. You can put out this one thing, but to have a sustainable business, you got to figure out ways to continue to have new things. Do you guys do like a leapfrog style development on these books where you'd have one coming out and one earlier in development at this kind of at the same time? We would have a lot um, in development at the same time. I mostly worked with freelancers. The freelancers, it wasn't their day job. They weren't always really good at hitting deadlines. You know, a lot of people, first time writers, uh, it's hard to write books, uh, be they game books or novels or strategy guides or whatever. It's hard to write books. So we would have a bunch of irons in the fire. We, we, as we got better at things, we tried to have a more planned calendar and work to that schedule. But, you know, uh, fortune throws you uh, slings and arrows and, you know, sometimes you needed to adjust. But it was not unlike building a cadence calendar for a live game. You wanted to make sure that um, you had major books coming out at specific times, like, oh, say, for Gen Con, which was the biggest um, gaming convention um, at the time. And you always wanted a major release at Gen Con. Um, but you would kind of want to do a major book, then maybe follow up with a couple lighter books and then a major book. And then a couple of lighter books and the major books would have higher price points. The minor books would have lower price points. But you would also want to make sure that you, you didn't end up with having four big hefty rule books in a row because that could really overwhelm uh, your players wallets or three adventures, which only the game master would need because that appealed to a very su- small subset of your uh, player base. It's crazy uh, on- how similar that is to what we would do on a content calendar wanting to balance some features right against each other and not have too many similar mechanics coming one after another. It's interesting, Jordan, because I've never actually made that comparison before. Me, me neither. Right, right now, but you are 100% right. And it kind of explains maybe why I enjoy Live Game Ops so much. Okay, uh, okay, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Yeah. But before we do, take me from that work, pen and paper kind of work, or, or it sounds like a lot of editorial and business work, to uh, your, your video game career. Yeah, so um, we made a, a stab at doing a video game, Champions the Computer Game, um, which I think was, at one time, was one of the most legendary pieces of vaporware in the industry. We actually got the cover of uh, Computer Gaming World, um, <laughs> and it never came out, which was the first time that it happened, I, th- I think not the last. But um, after Champions, I uh, wandered over to work but for... Champions did get made. Oh, the, the did, but that's much later. Okay, okay. Much later, and we weren't involved. Okay. After Hero Games, um, I uh, wandered over to work for Accolade slash Infogroms. What was the game? Was it Test Drive, the one where you were, like, escaping the cops in a Ferrari? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't do that one, but we did do a lot of racing games, um, a lot of Looney Tunes games, you know, a bunch of console games. Um, I was con- I was like a you know consuming. I was like a kid playing those games that you were working on there. Yeah, we we, we did stuff for the Dreamcast. I, I, I think I did some uh, documentations for some Xbox titles around the Xbox launch, the original Xbox, um, some PS One, um, PC, all, all that kind of good stuff. 
which, which, which was good. That was, that was a good uh, couple of years, but it wasn't actually making games. It was making things that was uh, peripheral to games. And, and well, what was that like, like emotionally work, working on that stuff? Was it like they should have done these things? What, you know, what was the experience like? I, uh, sometimes, mostly you're very aware because you're working very closely with the dev teams, um, you know, most of whom uh, were in-house um, in uh, uh, the, the, the South Bay of California. Um, is what's now Silicon Valley. It, it wasn't back then. But uh, there was some of that. Uh, and sometimes you could offer suggestions like, yeah, hey, I've been playing the build. and But by the time I got my hands on it, it was too late right. really to affect any changes. But it probably made you very hungry. That's what I would imagine from that kind of role. Um, it did. And so I actually, um, Hero Games got acquired and I jumped back to work for Hero Games. Uh, this was in the height of the dot-com boom and everything. When the parent company of Hero Games, and that's when I was um, running the company, when they kind of blew up, I got fed up with uh, working on games and quit gaming forever, um, professionally. You know, I've, I've always been a game player all my life um, and went to go do technical writing and technical editing for um, a tech startup and then Sun Microsystems on their coursework. And that's what I was doing when I kind of accidentally got pulled back into the game industry, this time on video games. Um, do, 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 do. One of my... Yeah, it, it's. I think my career sometimes can be defined by a series of accidents or uh, coincidences, um, rather than any kind of real planning. But um, what one of my uh, good friends, next bosses, Mike Pondsmith of Artalsorian Games, was up um, in Seattle working at Monolith on Matrix Online, and I happened to be popping up to Seattle for a vacation. Got in touch with Mike, who I hadn't seen for a little while, and uh, Mike said in his mysterious way, "Hey, we were just talking about you. We we should chat." Um, and so my vacation kind of turned into a job interview because uh, Monolith was also going to be doing the DC Comics online game. Okay. And um, Mike had been out with the uh, lead designer of that game, Jeff Zatkin. And Jeff and, I'm saying, sorry, who's, who's Mike? Was the creator of Cyberpunk 2020 and Mekton, ran a company called Artalsorian Games. Hmm. But he also worked for Microsoft where he worked on Crimson Skies and a number of other titles. Um, he worked on The Matrix That's Online. That's a great game. Crimson Skies uh, is a classic. He is an amazingly, amazingly talented um, designer, and I learned so much when I was working with him at Artalsorian. Anyway, Jeff Zatkin, who is one of the old EverQuest designers, who would then later on to go be one of the co-founders of EDAR, if you're familiar with uh, with EDAR, now has a VR startup, Experiment 7. Anyway, EDAR, Jeff, EDAR does like um, metrics and sales data and stuff like that. Right, right. They, they kind of could break down a game's performance and match it against Metacritic and other scores and companies consult with them about feature sets and, uh, you know, potentially how this game will do in the market and, and whatnot. Right. Yeah. They, I think they sold last year um, to a, another data analytics company. Jeff was an old champions player and said, Hey, I want one of the, I should need one of those champions guys. And Mike said, I know exactly who you um, should talk to. He used to work for me. And I literally called Mike the next day. Long story short, I ended up at Monolith, working on the Matrix Online, um, and this was my first house, first in-house development job um, on a, a PC game, um, as, as opposed to. I, I, being, I'm so sorry for you. It was a great experience. Um, Good. It was a learning experience, and one of the great takeaways from it was that a team of really smart and talented people can make a crappy game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was just kidding about being sorry for you, of course. But um, yeah. But sometimes, sometimes that's that sentence. The next sentence is is you know about a death march. Right. Uh, you know, it was game development. We had our our, our period of crunch. 
ostensibly they hired me uh, to work on this DC game. And the thought was uh, Matrix was going to launch in a couple months. I would work on that for a couple months to learn the technology, which was shared with, with the DC game, and then roll on to DC. Of course, that couple months stretched <laughs> out to almost two years. Right. And I got to do a lot of great stuff um, on that game, probably more than I should have. Um, but I, like I said, I got a chance to work with some great people. Toby was the lead designer on Asheron's Call. Wow. Um, wow. Very interesting. And, Some very interesting designs in that game. Yeah. Yeah. And just a really great outside of the box um, design thinker. Really, I'm a super great guy. Um, and again, someone I learned a lot from. Um, you know, Matrix had a number of failings, some in the design, some in the production, some in the fact that we came out um, about the time that World of Warcraft launched. Um, what about on the licensing side? Was it, did that present challenges? Because it certainly could, especially on a game that big and that live. Um, there were some. Um, I, from what I understand, licensing challenges, that was uh, above my pay grade at that point, so I didn't have to deal with it. There were some interesting um, things. Like I think they found out um, maybe a couple years into the project uh, when the art director was showing some stuff and the Wachowski said, you know, th- those look great, but, you know, there's no blue in the Matrix. <laughs> right. It's like what, and, and it's true. If you look at the movies, it's all green. It, it's all green until whatever happens, and and there's uh, the clear sky um, in the third movie. I think it is. Um, so yeah, that that apparently required a lot of um, rejiggering uh, um, on the art of the game, and, and gave it kind of a very green and. and what and year is time. this? That was two thousand and three. I was there two thousand and three, very end of two thousand and three to two thousand and five. I'm curious how it lines up with because I've always been blown away with that. Have you ever seen the Matrix game that has that that totally insane nonsense ending where the Wachowski brothers are like sitting in a chair and talking about story? Is that Enter the Matrix? Do they? It's Path of Neo. Oh, Path of Neo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just um, this crazy thing. Um, that totally, I, I mean, I, I didn't play it at the time. I saw it years later, you know, on an article or something, but, um, I was just curious. Cause if I, I know if I was working on a matrix game and I saw that my head would explode. Yeah. We, um, we didn't have a lot of interaction in the studio with the Wachowskis. Um, uh, we mostly worked, um, with uh, a writer that they designated, um, whose name I'm spacing on Paul Chadwick, I think. Okay. Like, again, super nice guy. Um, uh, very creative, but, uh, not a game writer. And so we would need to take what Paul was doing and translate it over to, to game stories. If I, but mostly I, I was working on systems on that game. So I was working on ability systems and the crafting system and the itemization system. We were a little under designered on that game, <laughs> as you might tell by everything that was on my plate there. I like that under designered, uh, another lesson to, to, to take away from that project. But we launched, which I think w- was a success, and uh, the game was not did not do well. Um, it certainly did not meet expectations, and uh, there was a layoff, and there that, those happen quite often um, in, in the game industry. And uh, so I went to LucasArts after that, um, got to work with a couple of my um, Matrix Online coworkers uh, there. We were working on an Indiana Jones console game. Um, we were in pre-production on that game my entire two and a half years at LucasArts. I remember that. I don't remember what it was called, but I do remember that game. We never announced a title for the uh, next-gen version, which is what we were doing in-house. But I think a DS, PlayStation Portable, or Game Boy version came out. That was Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. But yeah, we made a big splash 
at E3 um, with the cable car chase and then um, I think showing off um, some of Natural Motion's uh, Euphoria technology and the hit reactions and uh, and stuff with that. But uh, it it was um, an interesting and kind of another problematical project. Um, And that from there, uh, I actually moved back towards live games when I joined um, the City of Heroes team at NCSoft, which later became Paragon Studios. There, I joined as a senior mission writer, creating mission content, which I did for about six months, and then I stepped up to be lead designer of the live project. Uh, And that was great. That was a fantastic team, fantastic project. It was a superhero game, the best fan base ever. Uh, Those players were so awesome and so loyal and so knew the lore better than, I think, anyone at the company. Um, And they were just a joy to create for And that game game was around for a long time, right? It really kind of stood the test of time. I think it lasted seven years before NCSoft shut it down, and it probably could have kept going. Um, I think it was still making some money on that. They had converted over to a free-to-play model, um, and this was after I had left. And that must have been a bit of a relief from these projects that were you know, development for all this time to like a live game. It's already out, and mm-hmm. you know that what you're working on is going to be seen, going to get played, and going to get enjoyed. Right. I mean, within the first couple of weeks of me um, joining there, I got to do some content that came out, um, you know, just a couple of months later, which was considered fast in those days um, for, for a PC game, um, which I thought was great because I got to see how the players reacted to what I was creating. And it helped me know what to pay attention to and how to create better stuff um, for the players' desires um, on there. Got to work on some good uh, game systems with them on... Uh, you know, the, we worked on a boxed expansion going rogue while I was there. Um, and this was in um, 2008 and 2009. And in 2009, something very strange started to happen. Um, these Facebook games were coming along and uh, blowing up. And this little game called Farmville was getting millions of players a day. I heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of my ex LucasArts uh, co-workers, Bill Mooney, um, who I was playing D&D with, uh, had taken over as um, general manager of Farmville. And after I spent one evening complaining about the crop balance um, in the crop ramp in Farmville, he recruited me over to join um, Zynga to work on Farmville. So uh, I did that at the end of 2009. And that was a crazy, crazy time. Yeah, that's um, where, me, where we met. Exactly, exactly. You know, Zynga in those days... Man, it was the Wild West. Um, their Farmville had little process um, when I joined it. it. It was pretty much possible to come up with an idea on a Monday and have it in the game by Thursday. Um, I mean, just insane. And as the time went by... And have that idea played by, you know, 20 million people by yeah, Friday. exactly. And, and we were enjoying the same... Crazy growth. Um, I mean, I think when I joined, it was about 18, 20 million people. I think we peaked in March at about 32 million players a day. That's daily players, not monthly or lifetime or anything like that. Um, so just it, it was finally That's, a chance. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's absolutely yeah, unheard of. A, a chance to reach um, the mass market. Um and that's where I fell in love with free-to-play game design and where I kind of fell in love with uh, casual game um, design and certainly a fast-paced live game, live ops um, environment. Um, and I was at Zynga, all told, um, for four and a half years working on Farmville as a senior designer and lead designer, um, working on Castleville 
as a senior designer and lead, and, um, lead designer. I think I did some time on um, Sheffield as well. Um, all those great Invest in Express um, style games. And um, uh, that came to an end in uh, 2014. And I uh, took a flyer on going over to um, Germany uh, to a company called Big Point uh, to help them work on mobile games. And I did that for about seven months. Um, and came back here, um, joined Sega Networks in their three ring studio, three rings. Uh, people might recall puzzle pirates, which was, I think three Rings' is, sure. uh, greatest, um, creation, um, back in the day, which was a web-based game, but Sega networks had bought them and, um, was doing mobile games with them. And we were working on a lane battler that uh, based off the spiral Knights game that three rings had done and you kind of brought your live ops experiences from zynga from and really from what you had done even way back at heroes in in some sense to big point and presumably to some other companies yeah interestingly though i was working more on live games when i did that it was a chance to go back i'm live games i'm sorry on new games um and a chance to go back and uh, work on some um some new games i think i kind of think if you've done live stuff you really want to uh, do some games from the ground up because now you know all this stuff that's going to happen in those games and you want to make sure to like prepare the teams beforehand. You know what I mean? Right. You want to say, hey, why aren't we paying attention to what we're going to do the week after we launch and the month after we launch and the three months after we launch and how are we going to be keeping content going? What kind of evergreen systems do we have? Um, all those types of things uh, when you're working on the new games. Why aren't we paying attention to our operations before we even know what kind of game we're making sometimes. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, the kind of live ops and, and how to prepare a game for live ops. Like imagine, you know, there's someone listening who's got a game coming out, mobile, um, PC, but it's kind of a live, maybe free-to-play game. What kinds of stuff should they be thinking about? Uh, first of all, the amount of content they're launching with. There was an old rule of thumb in the uh, MMORPG space that said, the players will consume the content twice as fast as you think they will. Um, and this was true, even if you accounted for that, um, <laughs> players will consume your content as quickly as they possibly can much more quickly than you think they can. This is magnified by, um, the free to play model where players have ways to accelerate the process through the game, um, in return for premium currency, um, a, lo a lot of times. So you want to make sure that you have, um, enough content, that there's some repeatable content that, there are evergreen systems in there um, that will continue to spin and provide a baseline of activity, even without you needing to release um, any new features after the game has gone live. Now, PvP-style games, uh, competitive games, are fantastic for this because, in effect, the players are creating their own content. If I'm playing um, a game of war, the, my evergreen content are the other players there that I'm attacking or that are attacking me. Right. And that, that, that struggle for power. But if you're a more casual game, if you're a um, bubble popper or a match three or a farming game or something like that, um, eventually your players are going to get to the end of the levels that you have crafted or maxed out their farm and their crops or, or, or whatever. And it becomes a question of what do they do then? How are we going to continue to support this game, this game design? while it's live and introduce new things for the players to do and extend the content. Right. And, and also what's the, what's the cost of making that content, right? Like, can you get it, it done on time and on a budget that actually makes sense to continue with this? Product? It, it, 
Exactly. And I think Zynga, at Zynga, we were kind of always trapped by what we call the, the uh, cadence treadmill, um, that we needed to put out a certain amount of content to keep our players engaged every week. Um, and it was just this, uh, like, running fast, but just to stay in place. And as your game got older... Yeah, but if um, staying in place is like, you know, a million dollars a day... That's fantastic. You know, it's a pretty good place to stay. But And you can afford a big team when you're doing that. When you're, you know, generating, yeah, a million dollars a day or a hundred million dollars a quarter or whatever, great. There comes a time where you need to be doing more and more and more content in order to keep the players who are remaining in your game engaged. And they get faster and faster and faster at completing this stuff. And your treadmill is speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. And eventually it comes to a point where it's probably not cost effective. And that's when you end up sunsetting a game or offshoring it or. um, Plus you get the mythical man month, right? So it gets more, it doesn't, the the cost of a bigger team doesn't scale linearly. You don't, you don't start making an equivalent amount of content just because you add twice as many people to a team. Exactly. And there's a cost in talent as well. People get bored doing the same thing over and over again, but these people or exhausted, exhausted. You know? These people who are working on these successful games, <laughs> um, they're developing this incredible skill set, and that skill set is transportable to the other games at your company. And so you you want these people to be able to move on and you know probably move up to better roles and, and um, bring um, these lessons uh, that they've learned to your other games. And so these experienced creators are moving off and you're needing to train up and mentor uh, new creators uh, in this who maybe aren't as fast um, at at doing this stuff. And so, you know, things start to take longer. The the upside of that is that you're bringing in people with new ideas and and kind of fresh eyes. The downside is that you're moving out the experience. Well, and I think something that we saw at Zing is you're kind of training everyone that leaving a project is is success and staying with a project for a long time is like not as good Um, yeah that's a that's a challenging precedent long term yeah i i think everybody feels like they want to create the new thing and they don't understand that if you're on a live game you're creating the new thing every week or every month um on uh you know like when we were on castleville we got a chance to introduce new stories and new systems and new features every six weeks you know, for each of the designers um, on that game. And that's a chance to not spend three years working on a new game or 18 months um, working on a new game, but just to to spend, you know, half of a quarter working on a major feature that you then get to see in the game. You get to see how the players react to it. You get to see how successful it is, how to learn from it, um, and how to make yourself a better designer for the next time that, that you move things. It's, it's incredibly um, educational. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the amount that I learned at Zynga is very high. It was an, it was an extreme educational experience, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, all, all, all this thing with people, you know, kind of, kind of moving on all the time, and especially a lot of leads constantly moving, moving to new projects, it's sort of like if you gave someone a plot of land to farm and you said, your goal is to farm as much fruit from this as possible, but only for a month, and then it's going to be someone else's problem. Are they going to take care of that land? Yeah. Are they going to pay attention to crop rotation, uh, et cetera? And it's the same thing. If you have a bunch of highly motivated and talented uh, product managers and um, producers and general managers and designers, and your goal is you need to make as much money as possible, 
Um, you, you need to hit your, your revenue targets. Um, and you know that you're going to be moving on in three months or six months to another project or another game. Are you paying attention to the other indicators um, of your game's health, uh, to your, your retention and your long-term retention, and um, trying to, to stem off uh, a live game's inevitable uh, decline? And obviously, you know, Zynga's, look, they've, they've paid the price. One of the big learnings you brought is, hey, we have to prepare while making the game for what it's going to be like to produce content in an ongoing basis for this game. What, what kinds of systems have you found to be really helpful for, for doing that? Um, so that will vary from game to game. You, need, you want to look at things that are going to run without the need for you to put any kind of content in there. So um, the traditional things um, So PvP are, is one thing you mentioned. PvP, but that doesn't work in every game. But leaderboards, um, that type of weekly contests, that type of thing, work in a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, th- those types of things are very useful. Leaderboards is almost like but, the lightest form of PvP you can do, right? Exactly. Friendly competitions, who could be the most helpful, are, I think, useful in, in games that appeal to a more casual audience. Uh, along that those lines collections are good you know and they've been even good on console games um to a great extent 100 percenting on the xbox or, or the playstation right getting all the trophies all the achievements that's kind of a collection um long-term grind for those games and it keeps people engaged hopefully long enough so that when the downloadable content comes out oh they're still around and then they buy that and there's some more achievements to get from that and it, it you know keep them engaged for the life lifespan of the game, and I think the same works on these mobile games um, and on uh, you know the the web games and that type of th- stuff. The collection instinct within us is very strong, and, and that works which is, well. Which is why listeners need to listen to every episode of the Playmakers podcast to and sort collect of collect them all. Yes, on their phone. Um, you also want to design. Pay attention to how you design your content tools so that it is easy to put in new content and that content could be put in with a minimum of um, programmer um, intervention, looking at systems that you're going to repeat and templatizing them so that um, yeah. you don't need to do any programming. You, you, the, the designer or the content implementer could just fill, you know, fill out the template, change what they need to change and get something that looks with new art, you know, but you, still has the same underlying systems. That's a really good point because if you need to apply your engineering resources to just maintaining content, then how are you going to apply them to the new stuff, the new features that you want to have in addition to just additional content? Right. Or the big unspoken thing about live ops, the tech debt that you're accumulating every time you're adding something. And, you know, you need to make sure that you, some of your engineers are there to keep your code base stable and your thing optimized. Um, One of the problems we ran into Farmville was that as players got more and more stuff on their farm, the performance started to choke. It was flash-based, and it, w- it was terrible. But expanding the farm was a great driver of revenue. And there was this constant battle between our operations pod that would find optimizations um, to make the game run better. It was like, okay, great, things are running fantastic. Oh, good, does that mean that we could do another farm expansion? <sighs> I guess so. Um, and there was this constant cycle. Of, I think of, the same thing was happening yeah. with just the team sizes, you know, like hundreds of people, you know. Expanding yeah. the, the size of the team also helps helps you develop more but it, but whatever kind of procedural debt you have as a as a studio is also going to be impacted compounded really every time right. you grow 
Yeah, I, I think tools are very important. I think it's something that most games don't pay enough attention to until far too late in the uh, the process. And it's wonderful when you could get something implemented and suddenly what used to take you 10 hours is taking you two hours uh, to do. That means you could probably still do that level of content creation and go on to think of what's the next thing I want to add. Um, because no, none of these mobile games are ever released. None of these Facebook games, no game really, I think is ever released complete. It's always a question of, uh, we've got to release it. What are we going to scope? Uh, what do we think we're going to add in later? And if you're good, you preparing that roadmap post-launch that says, okay, two months later, we're going to add this feature that we, we had to scope. Three months after launch, there's this other feature and that you've got some kind of planned cadence so you aren't scrambling, um, trying to think, oh, God, the game's launched. Everything's doing great. We're running out of content. We need to do something. Jordan, go, which is the way a lot of live ops seems to run. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of people still still think like, hey, free to play, you know, anyone can get on the app store. Anyone can make a game free to download. But the reality is all these bits and bobs that we're talking about make make free to play actually have a pretty high barrier to entry to come in and be successful, you you need to play a pretty high-level game. You need to be thinking about the future. You need to be thinking about your processes. You mm-hmm. need to be ready for a big, long haul. Yeah, they used to say a lot about making MMOs that it, they weren't not a sprint with a marathon, but it's not really a marathon because just crossing the finish line doesn't finish the race. That kind of starts it. Right. Uh, you know, that's just your first milestone. And after that, you need to maintain it. Um, and uh, you, you need it to keep going. Um, and you, you, you definitely want those roadmaps. You want to balance your features, much like I had to balance the books, um, the types of books that I was putting out when um, I was managing the Champions game line. You want to manage your types of features um, that you're putting out so that they aren't all the same type. Uh, the features you're putting out generally are designed to uh, enhance your revenue or enhance your retention or to provide some kind of player joy or satisfaction. And if you have a quarter where you've done nothing but hard revenue um, features or grinds um, for the players, then you're probably going to really suffer in your retention metrics. If you, you just start concentrating on retention, you may well suffer on revenue, um, although there's something to be said that retention will lead to revenue. Um, over the long run, but you still need those revenue features. That's, and if you, I, I would just point out there's a fractal kind of nature to that, where then within retention or within monetization, you have the same issue. If you, if you try to monetize the same way over and over again, that's going to have diminishing payoff. If you try to retain with the same you know, surprise and delight features, then the surprise and delight is going to be less and less each time. So you have to constantly be pushing yourself to do new things. Right. And these new things happen and they work and then you probably repeat them a while later and they work and then maybe they become part of your uh, content cadence where you rotate them in with your other features. So um, you have a longer period between um, features to keep them fresh. And it also turns out that stuff that was, that was old reliable. Oh, this feature is fantastic. And it's always does great for us um, in revenue and retention. And we could do it about every four weeks it starts to lose effectiveness. And it's like, okay, so maybe now we're doing them every six weeks. Maybe we need to do them every two months. Maybe we just need to retire that feature type for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hopefully you're coming up with these new features that you're trying out. And the ones that work are slotting into that cadence rotation. Just try to keep it all fresh for the players. Let's talk a little bit about the 
kind of cadence calendar, do you have a system that you've used at several companies like, hey, I like to make a spreadsheet that kind of works like this. Here's how I think about what should be in development, what's coming up in two months, six months. How do you kind of manage that? So that's very interesting because mostly it's a collaborative process. It's not just um, the designer um, sitting down and thinking of it. It's probably um, somebody who's running the business side, and that might be a producer at a company or a product manager, sometimes a designer. But but who's ever in charge of that, the design lead, sitting down and saying, okay, we need to plan out what our quarterly calendar looks like. We would do that maybe a month before the previous quarter expired or, or six weeks, you know, halfway through a quarter. What let, let's look um, at, at the next quarter. What do we want to do? What kind of features do we want to be? And there are a number of ways to come up, up with the features idea, but you might have a basket of those. Or you might just say, okay, we really want need to concentrate on revenue this quarter. So about 60% of what we're, what we're going to do is going to be revenue features, about 35% of them, 40% of them are going to be more aimed towards retention. And we'll do 10% user love because user love doesn't really make us money or you know, move the metrics that, 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 that we can measure. Um, and then you try to pace them out on the calendar. So again, you aren't slamming people with similar things in a row so that things feel fresh. When you're looking at kind of a longer term, you're kind of looking each quarter, let's say, and saying, what's our big new innovative thing going to be this quarter? Where are we going to invest a lot of our risk and dev dollars? What do we want to do? And uh, you, you, yeah, I wanted to try to avoid that, but bold, <laughs> what we call this thing a bold beat, and that hopefully would lead to a golden mechanic, which is something that could be repeatable uh, both in your game and then maybe also in other games um, in your company. And you want to slot those in too, and make sure that those are well staffed and well funded, uh, and you know when they're going to come out. And if they're risky, you want to make sure that you have support features around them that kind of bolster the areas in which they're risky. So if they don't work, you're not completely missing your target numbers because there's nothing worse for a live game than to miss its target numbers. The executives start to get very nervous uh, when you, when you and do. And yet the best you can really do is hit your target numbers. Yeah, you can exceed them and then they get really nervous. Right. Yeah, you can you can exceed them and then and then that's your new target numbers. Yeah, exactly. It, it, um, and it, you get a pat on the back and then the next quarter you, you have, you know, um, big KPIs to uh, to try to meet because of that. So, okay, so what about, you're talking about, you kind of create this plan, right, in advance, but no no plan survives contact with the the users of the game, right? And so, presumably, you know, something you want to do doesn't work, something you didn't expect to work works really well, and now suddenly you've got to make some, some, some adjustments. Right, pivots, right? Yeah. It, it, it's all about pivoting. Like, I think a couple of shows ago, Mike was talking about pivoting in design um, as stuff comes up. You, you need to pivot in your ops. Um, That's episode as, two with Mike Micah, right. An excellent episode. You need to pivot in your um, live ops plan as well. Um, mm -hmm. It could be, uh, God forbid, uh, one of the, 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 your architect uh, has a motorcycle accident and breaks their coding arm. And uh, suddenly you're, you're going to be two or three months behind on the project. Just has, because has that, that happened to you? That actually happened to us on Matrix Online oh, wow. uh, in the middle of crunch uh, on our one day off. One of our senior uh, guys uh, did that, and it, it was interesting for a while. Or it, it could be that your um, revenues are falling or your retention is falling, some other key metric is falling here, and you need to divert some of your development efforts to investigate and try to plug those holes. Or it could be that your big bull beat is taking longer, just longer to, to do. It's not working. Um, sometimes you look at it, 
you know, three weeks into into when it started to develop or two weeks in and said, yeah, this this isn't going to work the way that we thought it was going to work. Uh, we need to go back to the drawing board and we need to throw the towel in on it. And then hopefully you've got backup stuff that you could slot in um, to those uh, release dates as you scramble around. It, it, it's uh, if you've uh, ever watched uh, any television shows about the, the production of sketch comedy shows or new shows or whatever, and they have the big board with with all the um, segments on there and, and they need to scramble them around to, to see what's going to fill. It's the same kind of thing, but uh, not to fill an hour's worth of content, but to, to fill a quarter's worth of uh of content on there uh, on frontierville i used to have basically a room full of post-it notes like hundreds yeah and sometimes they would want not want them out of the room and i would just take all the post-it notes and stick them in a drawer and then when when it was free and i just put them back up it it is a luxury to have a dedicated war room for a live game and it's a really or a war area if you can't afford a room but where you could keep that stuff up there where uh you could have your post-it notes of your stuff that's in development and your ideas and 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 everything and just um, be it a whiteboard, be it, uh, w- whatever, a place where you could go and take a look where, uh, the execs could go and take a look and just give you that snapshot of what's going on, but also that working surface for when you need to rejigger things, it, it's there and it's live for you to move around. So Bruce, now as you're kind of, you know, doing this and you're working on this calendar, you're getting feedback from the audience about what works. How do you design for them? How do you kind of understand the audience and do stuff that they're going to love that they're going to respond to? You're going to have a lot of tools at your disposal, probably at your company. There's fan forums, official forums. Uh, hopefully you have some kind of um, community manager uh, working there that's uh, bubbling up data, possibly um, you know verbatims for, for, from player um, forums and whatnot. But the most important thing you could do is play the game and play the game without using any of your advantages as a developer. So don't give yourself a bunch of free premium currency or advance yourself Try to make sure that you have an account where you're playing like a legitimate player and that you play that one every day Hmm. Um, and get passionate about your game. A lot of times in the game industry, you're not fortunate enough to work on a game that you would play um, in your leisure time, that uh, you may be a a big Call of Duty fan, but you'll never work on a first person shooter type. Um, And instead, you're working on a match three game. Become a match three fan. You need to. You need to have, as a designer, a passion for that game. Um, and get to know your audience. Really get to know your audience um, so you know what's appropriate for them. I think one of the big problems that um, the less experienced the newer designers have is that they'll come in and they're full of great passion and great ideas, but they're not thinking about the target audience. So they'll come up with these ideas that would work great amongst their peer group. These ideas for features, um, these complex systems, and these things that would be perfect for them or their friends, but not necessarily for, say, the um, 45-year-old woman or the 50-year-old man who's playing that game that is not a hardcore gamer. Um, so you really need to learn your audience and make sure that you're designing for them. So if I'm understanding you correctly, your, your point is, hey, there's, there's this... Uh, there's this- young game designer, he's like, I wouldn't play this game, but here's the features that I would like in it. And and you can see there's something mismatched there. Like You have to get into the mind of the person who would play the game and then design the features that that person wants. Right. Like on Farmville, there was a running joke about um, doing a tractor jousting thing. And we all <laughs> thought that, that was cool and whatnot, but it probably would not have paid played to our target demographic. A lot of times during our brainstorms, we'll be planning out our uh, quest 
um, theme calendar. A lot of the subjects that would themes that were suggested would be that's interesting, but I don't think that our audience really cares about a Farmville quest line that celebrates Harry Houdini's birthday. You, you really want to find things that are more on point and more in line with what, what your audience wants. Absolutely. Well, thank you for giving the audience of Playmaker so much to think about today in terms of live ops and free to play. Thank you very much for having me, Jordan. It was a real pleasure. It's a great show. I'm really enjoying it. Big ups to Bruce for coming on the show and sharing so much of his experience and knowledge with our community. If you enjoyed it, then uh, then you're going to want to see what's coming next because we got interviews coming that are fresh, that are going to be amazing. I don't want to give anything away right now, but I have a very, very special guest coming up, possibly in the next episode, certainly the next one or two episodes, and uh, I know you're going to love it. He's a legend. Some might say a god. Possibly a god. Possibly a legend. Possibly... I'm just making this up. You don't know and you won't know unless you subscribe to see what is coming up. And I want to say something else, which is this. You've made it to the end of the episode. That makes you special. That makes you part of the inner circle. This is the end of episode inner circle area. And you're here. You made it here. And you didn't even know it was here. And you got here, which shows me that you truly belong the end of the episode inner circle club this is a club that holds its meetings at the end of episodes of playmakers and you know we talk about things relevant to us as a group kind of our inner circle stuff right now the the agenda for this week's kind of session is the announcement of the club which we've done so i think we can strike the gavel and call this one over I will see you in the next episode of Playmakers and then in the post-episode session of the Inner Circle Club. Until then, I bid you adieu. Stay playful, my friends.